So here we are on the Esther series. This is uh, session five. So this is where we are in the whole series. We're coming to the final straight soon. Um, so far we have looked at living as an exile, living outside of the place that's been designed to be our perfect home, which God has set heaven in our hearts. But yet we're called to have eyes beyond this world but a heart for this world. Then we looked at... Um, trusting God in the silence. So Esther doesn't talk about God. It's, his name's not mentioned in the whole of the book, but that's there to help us think, wait a second, did they forget God, or are they teaching us what to do and how to live when we don't clearly see how God is working? And we've looked at discipleship, and that's, that mentoring concept has come up a few times today. Last time we looked at preparation in God's gym. And so here we are in session five, looking at sightedness and position. You, we've already established you are where you are, not by coincidence, but God has put you there for a reason. And that applies to why are you in your family, why are you in the class, why are you in the team at work that you're in, why do you live on the particular road or street that you live on? All these things aren't coincidence. This is because God has positioned you. And sightedness. What, what if you suddenly saw something from a completely different perspective? What if that person that you are just about to give up on, you just see something else about them, something that God values? How does that change your behavior and your way of thinking? What if that subject that you found really boring at school, suddenly you realize, ah, oh, there is a purpose to this. God's got this. For, for, for me for the future. He's building something in me. Or that club that you're attending, suddenly you realise it's not about what we do at the club, it's who I've been put around. All these things come from sightedness. Perhaps you might be thinking you're stuck in this meeting today and you're thinking, why am I here? This, this is boring, I should be in Eureka. But what if God grabs your attention today and he speaks to you about something that you're not even thinking of? So, let's look at the benefits of sightedness and positioning. This is an extract from the movie Wimbledon. And Paul Bettany, who plays a character called Peter, is in the Wimbledon final. And he's never been in the final before. He's kind of like a has-been, but this has got this kind of fairy tale run of games that puts him in the final. And he is getting slaughtered by his opponent, and he doesn't know what to do about it. Can you... Once again, at break point, he really can't afford to go down another break this early in the third set. He seems completely lost out there, John. Lost and confused. We may be witnessing the near total collapse of a player's game. At a moment like this, Chrissy, you have to wonder, what the hell is going through Peter Colt's mind? He's gone. He's making it. Suspended. 
course I want to win. I do. But he's just better than me. No, he's not. I'm two sets down. My back's killing me. You play through the pain. I'm too tired. My legs are like lead. Find a second wind. It's what winners do. It's unstoppable. No, it's not. It's a bundle of towels. What? I serve. It's like a book. You just have to know how to read it. Ladies and gentlemen, as play resumes, Hammond leads two sets to love and one win to love. Hammond to serve. Play. If he bounces the ball once instead of twice, he's going for the body. If he shifts back on his left heel and shows you his toe, it means he's hitting deep. Culture seemed to have Hammond's number on that one, Chrissy, which is a good sign if he's going to climb out of the giant hole he's dug himself. Okay, so once um, Peter realizes how to read the serve, once he was sighted, he can then position himself in order to be able to return the serves and begin to turn the game around. It was no good just being able to see it. He had to see it and then change his position in order to be able to respond to that. So how does good sightedness and position help me work with God? Sometimes when... um, I'm going up to over the Goodmay Station or, or Chaddle Heath Station. You see people realising the train's arriving and they just start running. And when they're in their business suits and stuff, it's always quite funny, particularly on a cold day when the ground's a little bit frozen and they're slipping over. It's, we, we used to go past, past Chaddle Heath Station on the way to school in the morning and it, we're betting on who's going to slip going around the corner. But um, people see and they respond because they've seen the train arriving. We want to be people that see what God's doing and get ourselves on the platform in time. Because if we don't see, we don't position ourselves rightly. Peter the disciple was trying to be positioned for, for, for Jesus, but he didn't see what he was doing. He didn't see that the kingdom that Jesus was setting up was a peaceful kingdom that was completely different to anything they'd seen. Because when push came to shove, he pulled out his sword and cut off someone's ear. Jesus had to heal that guy. Because he hadn't seen correctly, therefore he didn't position correctly. We want to see what the Father is doing and get into alignment with that. And that's how we got a partner with him. A few weeks ago, uh, we talked about Elisha and his servant. as a situation where, where their city is encamped, is being um, blockaded, and they're, they're really fearful. And the servant said, oh my goodness, we're, we're going we're gonna to lose here. And Elisha prays that his eyes will be open so that he can see. And he actually sees that there's more with him than against him. He sees the army of God gathered behind the enemy lines. That then causes a different position that he takes in terms of his hope and expectation. 
there was a time when um, Toby Simmons was, was going through some real challenges and a lot of anxiety. And from his perspective, all he could see was how he had failed to do what, what God was doing and that he was going to mess up what God was doing. And it was quite interesting. When I was talking to him, God gave me a clarity of, of sight in this. I thought, actually, Toby, you're talking too much about what you need to do. But God's saying what he has already done. And once you get a sight of that, it changes how you think and how you process and how you deal with all of these lies and issues that are coming. And just to see that revelation hit Toby at that time and see something rise up in him, that he took a completely different position to being really under that at the time. When we see and we position correctly, we act and we, and we think differently. Some people just get to see stuff. My, my wife Lucy is brilliant at spotting who fancies who. I never see it. She's, it's so obviously, did, didn't you see the way that he looked at her? Nope. <laughs> oh, and then how she laughed at what he said? Nope. Didn't see it. I'm not that sighted. I don't see things that way. Oh, oh, there was one point where I was responsible for the properties um, uh, kind of like overseeing the maintenance at Lifeline House. Oh my goodness, talk about a job you're not fit for. Dad's, Dad say to me, you see the, see the light bulbs out in the hallway? <laughs> nope. <laughs> you, do you, you realise that there's uh, only one toilet roll left? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'll see it when it's too late, but I don't see that stuff. I'm not someone that sees that stuff. Or that, that being able to see, you know what, that person doesn't seem quite right. How do we become those people that can see, therefore can position ourselves correctly? I don't want to miss what God's doing. I want to be a part of what he's doing. I want to partner with him. I don't want to be like Peter and take the wrong action. I want to get to the platform in time for that train, even if it means that I've got to run to catch up. Interestingly, God's more bothered about our positioning than we are ourselves. And he's constantly working to get us into the right position. He can cause people to rise and fall. He can get people to where he needs them to be. So let's first have a little look back at the story of Esther. And we're going to have a little look at sightedness. So there's three stories that we're going to pick out as case studies. And a few lessons that we're going to see from that. So let's have a look at the first story. So we see... The sightedness of Mordecai and the ignorance of Esther. She doesn't see what's going on. So this is just after the law has been passed by Haman that the Jews will be destroyed on a certain date. You remember Mordecai sees this and he tears his clothes and he puts ashes on his head, which is a signal of, of mourning, and he's, he's really distraught. Esther's reaction gives the impression that either she is completely unaware of this law or she's unaware of the significance of this law because it's reported to her in the palace, Mordecai is standing outside the gates and he he looks worse for wear. He's ripped his clothes, he's got ash on his head because he wasn't allowed to come through through the gates into the, the citadel. And so the first thing that she does is she sends him clothes to get dressed up properly. 
Now, I think that's, that's very much that reaction when that person starts crying in front of you and your first reaction, stop crying, stop crying. There's not an effort to say, why are you crying? Let me understand what's going on for you. It's, oh, let, let's dress you up so I feel better. We do that a lot. We want to take away the look of suffering because it makes us uncomfortable. There's a story that Chris Vallotton tells about taking um, Russian Bill Johnson to hospital. I think it was appendicitis or something like that that, that he had. But he gets into the hospital and um, there's a doctor that comes over and starts uh, seeing to, to Bill. And Chris says, is there something you can give him for the pain? And the doctor says, not until we know what's causing the pain. The pain tells us where the problem is. And it's quite interesting. How quick do we want to take a painkiller to numb the pain? Where actually the pain helps sightedness. Esther was asleep in the day. She was right in the the folds of power and she was unaware, she was ignorant to what God was doing and what was actually going on in this situation. We often talk about wanting to be like men of Issachar who knew the times and they knew what to do. And we want to be like that within our society. We did a whole series of hot topics last year and we were looking at what are those emotive and divisive topics that our society is facing, and how do we look at that with sightedness? How do we make sure that we're not in a place of power and asleep to it? We were looking things at the concept of tolerance, that that's such a big thing, that we should all be really tolerant, but yet we see the hypocrisy of tolerance, which is actually incredibly intolerant to intolerance. But we've got to be sighted to see the hypocrisy in this stuff so that we can bring a different message. We see the great value in being inoffensive. Don't say that. That's a terrible thing to say. That's not PC. But never does it actually address the issue in the individual's heart. Shut it down. Silence the person. Let's not hear it. Where is the healing or the exploration that is needed for that individual to come to a new revelation? We've got to be sighted to these things. Sometimes it's about personally being able to see stuff. There was a time that me and Michael were hanging out with this guy, um, and, and he was saying to us, he said to me, can you love someone you don't really like? And I'd done a lot of kind of reading up of the Bible at that time, so I had all these stacks of answers, and I just was about to launch off into giving different scriptures and different thoughts and that. And Michael just got in there a second before me and said, why do you ask that question? And he said, because I don't like my dad. Completely different conversation we had at that point because he was sighted enough to ask the question, to find out where is the pain coming from. So what's our first lesson in sightedness? To listen and inquire. Our inquiry should be active not just letting information wash over you, but actually thinking, how do I hear what is being said so that I could represent it again? So that's, that's a good way to know if you're actually listening. Could you 
tell someone back to them what they just said in the way that they said, yes, you got it right. That's what I mean. That's active listening. And thinking to ask a question that helps expose what they're thinking better to you or to themselves. And we're listening not just to the person that's talking to us. We're listening to what the Spirit is saying behind, just like Michael did in that situation. What if you listen and you don't have anything to say at that moment? What if someone is in pain and you can't fix it with something to say? Guess it's not your responsibility to fix it. Perhaps God's doing something and it's about listening to what he's doing. But think about it afterwards. Be saying, God, give me something. Let that disturb my spirit. Let me not just quickly get them dressed up in new clothes so that I feel better. Let me not just find a way to get out of this awkward conversation. What does God want to show you? What is the impression that has been left in your mind for that person? Empathy doesn't mean that you've got to fill the void with words. Okay, our second story. We're going to look at the sightedness of Mordecai and the ignorance of the king when it comes to Haman. So if you remember, Mordecai had the summer Haman. He knew him right away. He said, this guy does not deserve to be bowed down to. Meanwhile, the king was decorating him, was making them the prime minister. He let him write the laws and he just stamped it without really engaging with it. It was like the king had let Haman get in under his radar. He stopped questioning, analysing and considering what advice Haman was bringing. It was, as long as it has the Haman brand on it, it's acceptable to me. There was a sense that he was... I think Haman made the king feel a certain way. I think Haman knew how to play the king and it it made the king feel good. It was actually a self-indulgent relationship for the king. So how do we make sure we're sighted like Haman, like Mordecai, and not ignorant like the king? How do we make sure that we are aware of each other's weaknesses without becoming cynical or critical? We don't want to be those bitter people that just assume the negative about someone. Well, let's start from believing the best. I want what you say to be coming from the right heart. That's, that's my preference. But I remember that we're all fallible. I make mistakes, so this person that I love and care about also makes mistakes. And so my commitment to that individual is, how do I journey with them as they go through one degree of glory to the next? Because I have a responsibility to present my brother maturing Christ. Even if I think they're a great person, I want to see God make them greater. So I never let them under the radar in that sense. I never kind of just accept the brand. I need to keep something more significant as my focus than how they make me feel. Esther, in the end, was able to give her body to the king, but there was something that could be rooted in what God wanted. So she was willing to risk her relationship 
with the king, even for a life, because there was something that was more significant. A way that we're sightedness, as we keep, the way we have sightedness, is we keep a greater purpose than that relationship. We keep that sense of what has God got for me? What has God got for this individual? We risk our cosy relationships for righteousness. We're open for the leading of the Spirit. But even this doesn't guarantee you're never going to be conned. You're never going to be taken advantage of. You're never going to be betrayed. Jesus demonstrated. Even with all of his sightedness, he was still betrayed. But I would still prefer to be vulnerable to being betrayed than being cynical. So, our lesson from that case study. We need to love people more than ourselves. We need to love our Hamans so much that we will risk the relationship to see them develop. And we need to have a sense of conviction. We need to have something that's more important than the relationship. Okay, our last of the case studies of sightedness. So the citizens of Susa, which was the capital city where the, the, where, uh, the king lived, versus the, the ignorance of the king. So this is again, when that law was passed, the king and Haman sat down and, and had a beer and just relaxed. But the people of, of Susa were confused and shocked by this law. How could that be? Well, the king seems isolated from his people. He was in what we would refer to as the ivory tower. He was up there, didn't relate to the people that he was leading. Have you ever ever seen one of those episodes of The Undercover Manager or something like that, um, where they actually pretend to be just a normal worker and they come and mix with their staff, and it gives them a great insight to what their companies are actually like. I've often been told that the best managers come down onto the shop floor. They come and relate to their people to understand how things are being processed. We need to do that. It's so easy to make the assumption, oh, we've seen them at the meeting, we've seen the people that we relate to at the meeting, therefore they're doing all right. I remember talking to um, years back to one of the youth leaders, and I said, how's this individual doing? I said, oh, they're doing really great. I was thinking, they're really not. And then the next week they stopped coming, they didn't come again. And the, the, the leader was shocked, but it was because they based their decisions or based their analysis on what they saw just in a meeting context. They were in an ivory tower. They were completely ignorant to what was going on to that individual because they didn't allow their life to overlap. And we've talked about overlapping lives and the significance of overlapping lives. It's one thing to have those one-to-ones at McDonald's, but when a young person speaks to their parent like they do over the phone, and I'm there to witness that, our lives overlap. So positioning. God causes to rise and fall. He's like the ultimate chess player. And we've seen in the, <coughs> sorry, we've seen in the example of the, the dominoes. That God aligns things perfectly. So, what's our part? Well, our part 
is to get where he needs us to be. And I've often find that a difficult thing. So how does it, is it God's decision or is it my, my decision? How does it work? Now, the best um, theological work of the last 30 years, I would say, is expressed through Bruce Almighty. So <laughs> in this, um, this first clip, you're going to see Bruce's first encounter with God, who presents himself initially as a janitor, as a, as a cleaner. And we see that um, this is the point where he's going to be given the powers of, of, uh, of God to express what he wants to, be, wants to happen. Looking for room seven. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> you want me to even those up for you? <laughs> How do I get to room seven? That'll be on the seventh floor. Stairs right over there. I'd rather take the elevator. Out of order. I love the stairs, though. They were my second choice. Do you mind giving me a hand with this floor? What? <laughs> That's good. Are you serious? Oh, uh, I'm kind of busy. Um, rain check. I'll hold you to it. I'm free on the seventh! That's seven! Seventh, that's seven it is. Okay. <clears throat> now, um, <coughs> he goes up. Sorry, what's up? He goes upstairs. He meets with God. And God says, you've done a lot of complaining about me. Let me, um, let me give you some of my powers, and you can do a better job. And so the movie goes on, and Bruce just uses the power to suit himself. And each time he makes a decision to do something, it has catastrophic effects on everyone else, to the point in this next scene we see that the whole village, or the whole town that he lives in is rioting, everything's falling apart. Clap on! 
Clap on, clap on, clap on! Figures! Well, hello there, Bruce Almighty. <laughs> Not as easy as it looks, is it, son? This God business. They're all out of control. It's mayhem. I, I don't know what to do. Well, you're right on time. Seven o'clock. Seventh at seven. Wonderful thing. No matter how filthy something gets, you can always clean it right up. So, who made sure that Bruce met his appointment? Was it God's choice or was it Bruce's choice? That's why I love the movie. Because, yes, it was. You see in that, that move that God weaves his ultimate plan throughout our choices. And it's difficult to see where one ends and the other begins. <clears throat> in in um, 2 Kings 24, you see um, Judah coming to it, its end before um, it's finally crushed by Babylon. And you see all of these prophetic words over the, the people to say, there's going to be a time where I'm going to hand you over to, to your enemy. He's going to come and invade you. And then you actually read the story and you see that the, um, the puppet king that, that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had put in place actually tried to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes down and crushes him. So was it God's decision or was it man's decision? Well... You can see it either way. But what you get overall is God takes responsibility. God says, even though you did it, I did it. And I find that slightly reassuring, that God still can work within our decisions to make sure that his plan is taken about. And we see in the story of Esther that God has the ability to cause us to rise and to fall. And we remember the story of Vashti and Esther, how God causes one to rise and one to fall. When Vashti refused to obey the king, that gave the opportunity for Esther to be promoted. And then we see Haman and Mordecai are absolutely switched places. Because God has the ability to cause to rise and fall. We had a couple of words this morning about the breaking of chains, that God can actually cause chains to break And that's like changing positions. God can cause us to to rise in that way. Even when we've talked about the story of Joseph before, that his promotion actually looked like demotion. He went down into the the well, then he went down into slavery, then he went down into the prison, but all of those things were about getting in position to come up into the palace. And so when I was hearing those, those words about chains, I was thinking, well, how do we end up in chains? 
Sometimes it's decisions that we've made, bad decisions. We actually sell ourselves into slavery. It might be addictions, it might be um, uh, thoughts that we have. It might be things, though, that feel like others have done it to us. And sometimes the enemy likes us to get caught up in this thing of, you've done this to yourself, therefore you don't get to, to get set free. But what I see is, to God it doesn't matter. If you did it to yourself or it was done to you, that he is the chain breaker. Amen. And he can cause to rise and fall, and he takes responsibility. He will get us to our appointment. So how do we partner with him? Well, if we are submitted to him, we know that we are or that we're on the way to being put where he needs us to be. And I find that reassuring. And that, once I recognize I will be in the will of God, it's not a tightrope that I'm walking. He's more interested in positioning me and he can break chains he can cause others to, to fall so I can rise wherever we need to. And so my question is, why am I here? Why has he put me here? And that's how we partner. We begin to ask that question. So why am I here? Well, we see in the story of, of Esther that, that great line that Mordecai says to her, it could be that you've risen to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's always the answer. Why am I where I am? for such a time as this. And so you need to think about those spheres. Where has he put you? Where has he risen you to? Or it might feel like he's caused you to fall to these places. Maybe you didn't get that promotion that you were thinking. Maybe you've even got a demotion. Why has God put me here? Why does he need me in this place? And so we know that we're given general reasons for why we're here. And that's to reflect his love and his grace, to be Christ-like wherever he puts us. And that can be in a Wilberforce-type impact of abolishing slavery, or it can be in changing nappies. God's put me here to reflect his love and his nature. So if you don't know a specific, be satisfied that there is a general that is always applicable to you. And you don't have to be in a conducive environment for that to happen. You don't have to have the political will or the cultural support. Esther was in a completely opposite culture where she was able to to make a difference. And it might be that you've got a specific reason for being there. When I went to university... Afterwards, I came to the conclusion that I was put there to reach one individual. Possibly there were some other side effects, but that was the main reason why I, I was put there. It wasn't for the degree. You are here by his design. When Mordecai says to Esther... You came to a royal position for such a time as this. That word came would be better translated as brought. You were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
And what he's really saying, because Esther said, look, I've managed to get here by keeping my mouth shut. I've got here by all these very narrow margins. And we saw all those narrow margins when we did the dominoes. If, if I hadn't listened to this person and said what I needed to say at this time, if I'd acted this way instead of that way, everything would have been gone. I'm, I'm walking on a tightrope here. What Mordecai is saying that you did nothing to get yourself here. God brought you here. It was an act of divine grace that got you to where you are. So don't think this was your hard work. Don't think it was by your effort, by your skills. And that's the same for your workplaces. That's the same for your education. You say, well, no, I, I, I use my talents to, to get where I got. Yes. Who gave you your talents? Well, it was, it was my grit and determination. Good. Who gave you that grit and determination? Who gave you the oxygen that you breathed to get where you are? You were brought to the place that you are for a purpose, by his design. When we think that we get ourselves to where we are by walking the tightrope, by using our superior skills and talents and character, it means that we've got hold of something that we've earned by ourselves, which makes us very possessive of it, makes us very fearful that if we got it, we could lose it. We can spend our lives feathering our own nests, using our places of employment, our places of influence, to better ourselves. And that was the real challenge that Mordecai brought to Esther. He said, you didn't get yourself here. You didn't cause yourself to, to rise. God promoted you for such a time as this. And so therefore, you can let go of all the things that you think that you've accomplished. You can sacrifice. When we realize that it is God's grace that has been making sure that we've made our seven at seven appointment, we can relax and say, you know what, God, if I give everything up, you can save me again. And that's what King David said when Absalom, his son, was rebelling against him. David walked out of the kingdom and he said, God can put me back here if he wants me back here. But he knew that it was not by his strength or his might, his ability to fight for his position, it was God that would do it. We also see in the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were people that said, you know what? Our God can save us from this fire. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down and worship the king. That was such a risk. I love it. They had no guarantee. They didn't have a prophetic word that they were working from. But they knew that God could save them if he chose to. But if he didn't, he's got a better route for them. So how do we respond? Our first thing is to say, is, God, here I am. I'm not going to spend my life thinking, oh, if I was only in this different position, if I only had this different relationship, if I only had uh, this, this skill in my backpack, 
then I could be used of God. We choose not to say that anymore because we say, God, you can put us wherever you want, whenever you want us to. Remember this story about this guy called uh, uh, Dave um, Mansell, who was one of the uh, early leaders of the house church movement. And one day he was coming down the stairs and God pointed out the piano that was in the corner of the room and said, play the piano. He said, God, I don't play the piano. That's my wife's piano. I've never played the piano. And he said, play the piano. He sat down and he wrote one of the most influential worship songs of that era. And then he couldn't, write, he couldn't play the piano any again after that. Like, God can put him in that position for when God wants him there. The question is not, oh, once I've learned, then I'll be useful. No, if God says it, God can skip those things. God can cause to rise and to fall. And then we respond by saying, I'm willing to risk whatever I have, whatever reputation, whatever job I've got, whatever relationships that I have, because I'm in your hands and you can cause me to rise again.